0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Forces loyal to Bashar Assad are assembling for an assault on Idlib, the last opposition stronghold in Syria. The UN estimates that Idlib is home to 10,000 fighters from militant groups, including the organization that's mostly been known as the Nusra Front. But Idlib is also home to several million civilians, many of whom were displaced from other parts of Syria. Turkey's foreign minister says a military solution would be disastrous. Where will some 3.5 million people go? Let's talk about Idlib with Dr. Zayer Solul. He's a critical care specialist at Christ Advocate Medical Center. He's president of MedGlobal. And as past president of the Syrian American Medical Society, he's made innumerable trips to help provide medical care to patients in Syria, including during similar situations during the siege in Aleppo. And I've been talking with him for six or seven years on the program. Thanks for joining us again, Zayer. Thank you, Jerome, for having me one more time. And this uh, final assault on an opposition stronghold, it's, um, we've seen this before in Aleppo and other Syrian cities. And um, how, do we, how should we digest this last thing?
1: Um, I mean, when, when I was coming to this studio, I saw people um, walking in the street. The weather in Chicago is very nice. Um, at the same time, I was thinking of the children in Idlib. There's 1.5 million children, Syrian children. Um, half of them are displaced from other places uh, that were under siege, Ghouta, Dara, Homs, and other places, Damiya, Daraya. And they are right now waiting in terror uh, for the falling bombs uh, that is expected with any military assault um, that are fired by the Syrian jets and the Russian jets. Most of them have no place to go. There are no proper shelters. Um, And even though that our government have been warning the Syrian regime not to use uh, chemical weapons, uh, but the regime has been using all kinds of conventional weapons, including cluster bombs, uh, incendiary bombs, um, uh, bunker busters, um, to bomb hospitals, to bomb schools, to bomb markets, to kill children, and with no um, condemnation whatsoever from our own government. I'm really furious about uh, the lack of response from our own administration. Uh, President Trump has been tweeting on all kinds of things, um, whether they're trivial or uh, significant, but he never tweeted about what's expected uh, in Idlib, the, the expected catastrophe that will happen if there is any military assault.
0: What can you tell us something about Idlib as a city and um, what it's like? Most of this is just just a name to people; uh, they they don't really know what it is, but you do.
1: Um, I visited Idlib uh, in 2016, um, and uh, Idlib is a province in Syria, one out of thirteen provinces. Uh, it had a population of one million people before. Uh, the crisis and now it grew to about three to three point five million people because of the displacement from other areas. It has major cities like Idlib city, uh, Sarakib, Kafar Takharim, Maarat al numan One of the cities uh, was this, the 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 place where chemical weapons uh, were used uh, last year, um, um, where sarin gas was used, and there was a response at that time by um, the United States, uh, where they hit some of the uh, regime's airport. Uh, but Idlib has a diverse population. They are Muslims, uh, Christians, uh, Alawite, uh, Shia, and uh, many of the villages in Idlib. It's a very agricultural area, beautiful cities. And, uh, you know, people like us, uh, they, are, they have attorneys, um, doctors, uh, teachers uh, who want to live, who want to have a future for their children. And right now they are waiting uh, to be um, attacked, and they have no place to go. Idlib, by the way, borders Turkey and Turkey has sealed the border uh, for the past two years. That means if these people wanted to leave or flee from the expected um, assault, they have no place to go.
0: And is it right to characterize these people as probably uncomfortable under the government control in Syria? They don't want to be under Assad's control. These are the people who were Uh, You know, half of them were left over from other places that were under siege, and they are probably deeply uncomfortable
1: with wherever they have to go in Assad-controlled Syria. Uh, Exactly. And also they are uncomfortable with the current situation. Uh, Most of them don't like uh, that al-Nusra has a place in Idlib, and that uh, some of uh, these uh, extremist organizations still are mixed uh, in, in Idlib, uh, and they're endangering the population. They hate the situation. Most of these people, I was speaking with one of the doctors who actually was displaced from Ghouta. His name is Dr. Abdullah uh, Alzeer, who was in Ghouta under siege for six years. Then after the deal with the government, after the assault on Ghouta, he came into Idlib, and he told me, you know, we all of us fled from the regime, and we I cannot... Uh, foresee a situation where I or my family live under the control of the regime. So we're talking about educated people who cannot tolerate uh, living again under the same brutal regime that they fled from. By the way, this doctor, his mother, who's 72 years old, is in the prison, and his three sisters are in the prison of the regime. And this is a doctor who was living near Damascus. Uh, We're talking also about a situation where you have 82,000, according to CNN and Human Rights Group, of people in Syria who disappeared in the past seven years in the prisons of the regime. The Syrian government just a few weeks ago declared 850 of them dead uh, due to heart attacks and dehydration. We're talking about young people who went to the regime, uh, prisons, and detained and tortured to death. And this is out of 82,000 that are disappeared. And most people uh, assume that these 82,000 are... This is a huge number, Jerome, 82,000 people who were killed under torture. It's uh, it's uh, hard for people to digest uh, really the the
0: magnitude of what's happening, and um, it seems in in the news it just seems like it's repeating itself. Aleppo, Dar'a, all, all the other cities. Um, wh- uh, what should wh- how should we view what's going on? I mean, these people are now going to be moved to where exactly? Uh, if Turkey is the border closed with them. There are these de-escalation points that they've uh, Turkey has been manipulating within uh, Syria. Is this? Well, I don't know how you de-escalate three million people into a, into a point,
1: but they they're gonna they're gonna go somewhere. This de-escalation is a farce. I mean, um, Ghouta was the escalation zone north of Homs and Dar'a were the escalation zones, but that did not help when the regime and Russia um, decided to assault them and displace more people. Uh, I think what's more important, uh, yesterday I was speaking with one of my friends, Biki Carroll, who uh, started a group called Stand with Aleppo uh, two years ago with uh, uh, with um, other mothers who cons- are concerned about the children of uh, Syria. And she told me it's amazing that uh, the public in general uh, does not pay much attention to about what's happening to the children of Syria. Um, because it is, this is the scale of the crisis in Syria is unimaginable. We're talking about half a million people who were killed. We're talking about six million who are refugees and seven million inside Syria who are displaced. A destruction of historic sites and so forth. What's happening in Syria, and that's what need we need to understand. Even if you don't care about people in Syria, and I know that the people here care if they know the information. Um, What's happening in Syria is affecting us. Syria is surrounded by countries that are our allies. We're talking about Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, uh, Iraq. All of these are allies to the United States. So instability in Syria will affect our allies. The Syrian um, um, refugee crisis created global refugee crisis. One out of four of the 20 million refugees in the world is from Syria. Uh, that created anti-refugee sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment, and the rise of hate group and terrorism and chaos in Europe and also in the United States. Um, and also, um, this last generation of Syrian children who are in the refugee camps in Lebanon and Turkey and and, and Jordan, who are not getting proper education, uh, going to be um, a source of instability for the region and, and the world for the foreseen future. These are children who are grown without education, who are desperate, who have psychological trauma, and they are fertile ground for extremism, uh, ideology, for poverty, for um, violence, uh, for trafficking, and all kinds of ills that the Middle East and the region and Europe will suffer from.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Zayer Solul about the imminent assault on the Syrian city of Idlib by forces loyal to Bashar Assad. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to find out about the Sonia Shah organization and the work they're doing in Pakistan and in Chicago. And I did want to play, um, I think, one of the reasons people feel helpless is, and the government in the United States has had a, a policy that is a little amorphous and kind of based on chemical weapons. And we did see the Defense Department spokesperson talk about this the other day, and here she is.
2: Any Russian and or Syrian regime offense offensive on Idlib and any kind of an escalation uh, in that area? We would hold them responsible and we would hold them accountable for that, especially, uh, most especially, for the use of chemical weapons.
0: When you unpack that statement, it is they're going to hold the Russian government accountable for an
1: escalation.
0: Uh, What does that mean to you? Uh, Does that mean?
1: (laughs) We've heard this, unfortunately, many times in the past seven years. And every time we had uh, these kind of uh, languages by our State Department, uh, it's followed by massacres in Syria, with some maybe condemnations in the United Nations, but that was not translated into protection of civilians, protection of hospitals. More than 450 hospitals in Syria were bombed by the Syrian regime. More than 850 doctors and nurses were killed um tens of thousands of children were slaughtered and we're just looking at this you know less than 1% of the half a million of uh, of of people in Syria who were killed were killed by chemical weapons Less than 1%. This is a large number, but it's still, I mean, people are being killed by conventional weapons. And I think we should make sure, and we have the ability, because we are still the country that people look at us as the superpower of the world and that we can influence what's happening in Syria. We have troops in Syria not far from Idlib. We have 2,000 American troops who are protecting the Kurdish Syrians. And the rest of the Syrians are looking at them, are looking at us as this country that uh, is Hippocratic because it is protecting. One part of Syria, we protected the Yazidis, of course, we protected the Kurds, but we are allowing the slaughter on the majority of Syrians. And this will come back to haunt us in the future.
0: Now, the United Nations is talking about um, an escort for civilians. Do you put much stock in what the the UN envoy has said? He will go there. He will bring people in and and escort people out. Um, Do you think that's good?
1: (laughs) I mean, Dimas has been the envoy of the United Nations for the past uh, three years or so. Uh, he, um, um, he did not get any concession whatsoever from the regime to avert any assault, to prevent any massacre, to prevent any siege, to prevent any use of chemical weapons, or to have any political uh, compromise. Um, he did the same thing, by the way, before Aleppo. He mentioned the same thing, that he will go and escort whoever... Uh, to come out of Aleppo, and nothing happened. So I think this is just a bluff.
0: What should do? You, do you have any advice for people, on what they should do right now?
1: We had a meeting with, Senator Durbin with the Senator Durban with uh, some faith leaders, uh, Syria Faith Initiative, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, uh, you know Catholic, um, um, Baptist, and uh, rabbis, and Muslim leaders. We met with our senator and we asked him about uh, doing something about Syria. And, um, you know, he's uh, clearly consumed with what's happening in other aspects. Uh, but he told us that he's not, um, he, the public are not paying attention to what's happening in Syria. He's not receiving calls about Syria. And I think we have to pay attention. I think we have to to convey this message to our congressmen, to our senators, to the State Department, to President Trump, that what's happening in Syria will affect us. And it's unacceptable that we are living with the worst human. Maintainer crisis in our lifetime, and we're paying no attention to it. Dr. Zair
0: Saul is president of Med Global. He's past president of the Syrian American Medical Society and has made innumerable trips to help provide medical care to patients inside Syria. Thanks for joining us and talking about the imminent siege on uh, Idlib, the imminent assault on Idlib, rather. Thank you. After the break, we find out about the Sonia Shah organization and the work they're doing in Pakistan and Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Me Too movement created a paradigm shift in the U.S. on how we think about gender and inequality. But many critique the movement as being too elitist, that women without fame, money, or privilege, who we've never heard of, were still not being heard. Years before the Me Too movement, one privileged girl, Chicagoan Sonia Shaw, decided it was time to walk the talk, and her dream lit a fire for many.
2: My name is Ruby Ryder. I live in Chicago, Illinois, where my mom was born and raised, and my dad was born in Ahmedabad, India. I attend Pulaski International, which is a school in Bucktown, Chicago. Sonia's story really speaks to me because I feel we both share the same hopes and dreams for young girls. We both really value education and the reason that we both feel it's so important for a young girl to be educated is because when people say education transforms a society, I really do think that it's true. It's truly a backbone for someone's career, and it teaches you knowledge that will help you in any circumstance or situation that's introduced to you. So today, I will be reading Sonia Shah's college application essays. My grandmother was married at the age of 13 and left school after passing the eighth grade. Despite her lack of formal education and a life lived in the rural Northwest of Pakistan, she was intelligent and ambitious she convinced her husband to move their family to Peshawar, the largest city in the region, and ensured that all six of her children received the best education available. My mother's almost ferocious support of her children's education encouraged her youngest child, my mother, to enroll as the only female in a class of 80 at the local business school. On the first day of classes, my mom's teacher asked every student in the room about their plans for the future. When my mom responded that she wanted to travel America to get her MBA, he laughed. Mama remained unfazed. She eventually did go on to get her MBA at the University of Chicago, and it is thanks to her determination that I enjoy a world-class education and the comforts of the West. It is no coincidence that Pakistan is both one of the poorest nations in the world and also one of the most illiterate. Women and girls in particular are suffering from the lack of educational opportunities, Only 36% of Pakistani women are literate, and such appallingly low rates of literacy have been associated with early marriages, unhealthy children and mothers, and acute poverty. We have seen time and time again that an educated woman can have a powerful effect on her community and society. My mom has always said that the only difference between her and our cleaning lady is that my mom had the chance to become educated. It is only through the work of the women that came before me that I don't live in ignorance and isolation, and every girl in Pakistan deserves the chance to create similar change for herself and for those around her. That is why my mom and I are starting a girls' elementary school in our home village, the same village that my grandmother left so many years ago. We want the few girls we can reach to then reach out to others, and so work together to build a better life for all women in Pakistan. Given the chance, there is no limit what these girls can do. Who knows? Maybe one of our future students will go on to get an MBA in America. I certainly wouldn't laugh at the thought.
0: It's Thursday and time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Ruby is just one of many Chicagoans who were inspired by Sonia Shah's dream to reverse centuries of repression for women and girls in Pakistan. But Sonia died tragically in a car accident the day before she was to leave to start her freshman year at William & Mary. Sonia's legacy continues through her mother, Iram Shah. She now runs the Sonia Shah organization in her daughter's memory. Worldview. Steve Bynum sat down with Iram to get caught up on the school in Pakistan. Also, her latest mission is to give underprivileged girls in Chicago the same shot at success as those girls in Pakistan. And Iram Shah always gives thanks to the woman who forged a path for three generations of women.
3: My mom, um, she's the most positive person I've ever met in my life. She's 88 now. She has lost everyone in her family. Her husband, who died 30 years ago. Your father? My my father, her mm-hmm. husband. Mia Habibullah.
4: In mm-hmm. your uh, mother's name?
3: Kulsum. Actually, Sonia started the foundation in her name. She wanted to dedicate it to her grandmother because she felt that if my mother had not left the village after she got married, and I did not leave Pakistan to come here she would be one of those girls in that village, and she would quote me all kinds of facts, like how many girls are out of school and what percent of the total girls are in Pakistan. And And if you look at the facts, it's quite scary. There are about 130 million school-age girls who are not going to school, and 11% of them are in Pakistan. When you look at Pakistan, the girls where we have a school the literacy rates really goes further down. Only like three out of 10 ever go to school. Pakistan is in the top three countries of illiteracy rate. Pakistan was close to her because of all the reasons, because of the literacy rate, because of the suppression little bit of women in that part of the world where they would put forward their boys to go to school, but not girls. So she made a point to start there. And when I see now there are 110 girls out of 170 students in Sonia Shah's school. And these girls would never have ever opportunity to read or write or write their names. And it's all because Sonia made it happen.
4: These girls have had a rough go of it. They've been through a lot to get to where they are. Can you talk about some of the experiences of the school and some of the um, trials and tribulations they've had to endure?
3: So, yes, yes. I mean, we cannot imagine in this country the poverty in in, in these communities. Um, Some of these girls would not even have three meals a day. They don't have clothes. So when we give them free uniforms, it's like they have clothes now to wear. Most of them, 99% of them, have never seen a doctor. So when we bring a doctor to check up for vaccination, giving them vitamins, it's a novel thing for these kids.
4: Now, is it strictly poverty or is it, some belief that girls are not worthwhile or worthy to see a doctor?
3: It's 80% poverty and also the fear that if girls go out of the village, something will happen to them. Mm -hmm. So parents worry because Sonia, when she went to the village, she didn't want to just start a school. She wanted to go and talk to people. So she lived there for three weeks in that village and went door to door to talk to the fathers to find out what is the reason. And couple of reasons. One was poverty, for sure. Second was they were afraid something would happen to the girls, and most of the schools were at a distance where they had to take them. So she wanted a piece of land which was really in the center of the village so that girls can walk up to the school.
4: Jerome and I were in India in 2015, uh, and we were hosted by an organization I think you may have heard of, India Development Service. And When we went to this particular village, it was um, a school where the girls were. And, of course, you're in the country, in rural areas, as you know, it's really um, unusual for uh, these girls to even be allowed to go to school. And so one of the things that they did was they set up a sewing shop where the girls could make clothes for, like, Burberry or garment bags. And the fact that the girls were able to generate an income, the parents felt fine, or at least better about them leaving for the same reasons, because they see their children as a source of income for the family. And so it has to be a difficult thing, almost a heroic choice for that family, considering all the societal pressures that they're under to say, yes, I will let you go to school. I will let you better your life. Have you heard about some of those challenges or some of the um Cultural pressures on these girls and families?
3: Yeah. So we do have a vocational center also for girls. But what we did was we encourage only older girls to go to the vocational center to learn to make clothes. Mm. And we Discourage the young girls to go there because we want them to go to school. Sure. Um, so now we have about 100 girls who have graduated from the vocational center and they are generating revenue for themselves. Yes, it's very hard for parents to send their daughters, especially. And when you ask girls who to blame, interestingly, they blame their mothers more than their fathers. Mm because in that village, mothers are having a lot of children. They marry at very young age, and they have children until, you know, for the next 15, 20 years. So their older daughters act like mothers of the younger siblings, and they take care of the household, cooking, cleaning, and therefore the mothers don't want their daughters to go to school because they help their mothers. Some mothers do, but they feel like they are sacrificing by sending their daughters. One of the girls who was older, much older to go to school, I observed her because I went and lived there. She was only 15. Her household had 35 people. And she would get up five in the morning, 435, milk the cows, cook and clean for 35 people every day. And from cleaning to cooking to bringing water. And she had no life. It was interesting how bold these girls are, in spite of the fact that they have never watched a television. They never went out of the village. And her father came, and I was interviewing her, and she said, "I told my father that you didn't send me to school, so I'm not going to read Quran because you forced me to read Quran, but you never send me to school. How can I be a good person if I am not going to school and learning about the world?" So she was only 15, but very resentful of the fact that she was suppressed in so many ways. So on one hand, these girls are very you know, naive in a sense that they've never seen the world, but they're very bold and hungry for education. Because when Sonia went to the village, she went to the local schools where government pays the teacher to get the students to their homes and teach at home. And Sonia could not talk to me in front of them, but she would call me later on and say, the teachers are not teaching the students anything. And the students are waiting at the door or cleaning up the home for the teachers all day and only study like five to ten minutes a day. Uh, so the situation was so bad, and but still these girls would come and sit and wait for the teacher to teach them something. So there's such a hunger of knowledge And now things are changing. Fathers are talking about how great it is to send their children to the school. In the beginning, there was a sense of suspicion. Why would you come and help us? Hmm. Why would you give us free books, uniforms, vitamins? Why would you bring computers and smart boards? There's no school in that area. What do you
4: want in return? Yes,
3: yes. And for first year, they couldn't understand it. But now they're beginning to get to know the organization, the school. That's why we started the filtration plan first. So that gives clean drinking water to the entire village. But now it's really changed how they perceive the school. They're sending their daughters, the older daughters, the younger daughters. We also put a condition that every boy brings two girls. So we moved the ratio from 50-50 to now it's almost 70-30. And slowly and gradually we'll have all-girls school. We started with only five grades. Now we are eight grades, and we're going to take it to high school, to college. As I said, this is the only school in the whole area that has smart boards, computers, and now each child will get their own Kindle, e-library on an Mm -hmm. e-reader. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Booker World. It's a foundation run by Dale Copps, founder. He found about Sonya Shaw Organization. And, you know, he gives away e-readers with an e-library on it so these kids could read the books.
4: Irem, as you know, freedom usually comes at a price. And there have been a number of uh, attacks in Pakistan against schools where girls attend. And you, unfortunately, your school and um, your students and your staff had to endure such an attack. Can you talk about that attack, when it happened, and what happened afterwards?
3: So the first attack happened really at the initial stage of building. We had just put out the filtration plant. And uh, fortunately, none of the students or teachers got hurt, but the school was completely destroyed. It was really the initial stage. We had just completed the building, and we had put in the filtration plant. It completely destroyed the plant. The second time, it happened a couple of years ago when the school was up and running. And interestingly, two men came on a motorbike and they threw a grenade. Uh, the grenade ricocheted and struck the guy. Mm. And he eventually died.
4: So the, the would-be terrorist. Yes. So, uh, and um, what was the government's response? What kind of support did you receive after the attack?
3: You know, it was mixed. We wanted them to do a little bit more, but there was so much fear because right before the first attack on Sonia Shah, if you remember, there was a big attack in another army school in the city, and about 144 children died.
5: It was 10 in the morning at the army public school in Peshawar. The children were in lessons, arrayed in their tidy green uniforms. To one side of the compound, Seven men, wearing explosives vests and carrying guns, scaled a ladder, resting against a side wall. Once inside the school, the seven militants opened fire, indiscriminately.
3: So they wanted to pay attention more to us. They came, but since there was no casualty, it was we couldn't catch the people. The, even the second time, we had the motorbike, we had the guy, but nothing happened to the other guy. So we could not keep him, one reason or the other. And the other reason is that we are so far from here, so we were talking to the police indirectly. Now, Pakistan, I think, under Imran Khan, is going to be very different because he was uh, really in power for Bokhtun Hwa, that part of the world. Mm. And things are really changing now. And
4: he supported your organization in the past. Actually, he's donated um, cricket equipment yes, for yes, your galas.
3: Yes, from the day one. He has supported Sonia Shah organization. In fact, one of his educational minister came for the inauguration mm. to that very small school. So I'm very grateful to Imran Khan for his support, and I think his heart is very much into education.
6: alaikum Imran. Um, First of all, thank you for giving a whole generation of Pakistanis the hope for a better Pakistan. I speak for not just for myself but for a lot of other youngsters like me um, who now believe in a better Pakistan and are actually looking forward to being back in the country. Uh, My question is, um, what advice would you give to people like me who have graduated or are still studying um, in terms of staying here for a few years, going back, do you think We can make a difference there or we should stay here for some time and build our careers.
5: Whatever you decide in your life, education is a means to an end. So you must ask yourself, why am I doing this degree? Is it just to have a a salary? You know, is it just to have material comforts? Or is there a bigger purpose to that? Now, all the Pakistanis who I see here, you know, you're a tiny proportion of the privileged class in Pakistan. You have had quality education. So all of you should ask yourself the question now, don't you think you have a responsibility to all those people in the country who are struggling, who are not equipped like you are to help uh, themselves? So in my opinion, all of you, this is the time now to go back to Pakistan. This is the time to take the plunge.
3: So I'm very positive, but the attacks, going back to the question, had a really bad impact because the parents got very scared. So after the first attack, we had 80-some students. We went down to 20. Mm. And then we had to go back to the parents to say, please come back. And now they are fighting to register for the school. We don't have enough space.
0: Iram Shah runs the Sonia Shah organization in her daughter's memory. After the break, you'll hear voices of the people from Pakistan whose lives were transformed by the dream of one Chicago teenager. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. It's our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Worldview's Steve Bynum is talking with Iram Shah, president of the Sonia Shah organization. The foundation is named in the memory of her late daughter and her dream to educate girls in Pakistan. The group celebrates Sonia's life and their work at their annual gala on the evening of Saturday, September 8th at the Logan Square Auditorium. Let's resume the conversation with voices from a small village in Pakistan transformed by a girl they've never met. So you were kind
4: enough to bring us some of the voices from Pakistan, people who are doing the work over there. Tell us about um, one of the people we're going to hear.
3: Maybe I can give you an example of a girl who went to a vocational center. Well,
4: let's listen to her.
2: My name is Sumbo. I work in Sonia Shah Vocational Center. Prior to this, I had no source of income and I was sitting at home doing nothing. Now, I work from home and make clothes. And earn about 200 to 400 rupees a day. I'm very happy that Sonia Shah's school took this step and benefited all of us.
4: So tell me what we should know
3: about Sambu. She's very bright, bold, amazingly smart, and she is so determined to change her life. And she really doesn't care if somebody will allow her or not. She's not looking for permission.
4: She sounds a great deal like Sonia. So, Aram, you know, sustainability is a big subject matter on Worldview, and you're actually a big believer in sustainability as well. As a matter of fact, um, in your career, I think you've done some consulting about efficiency and sustainability. And so uh, tell us uh, some of the things that's happening at the school around sustainability.
3: Sustainability is very important and it has been important in my career, but also for Sonia Shah School, we installed solar panels a couple of years ago. And this is a village that gets only five hours of electricity in a day. Mm. And now it's getting 24 hours a day. We have security cameras for the school that is operating 24 hours. We have water filtration plant that is working now because it's getting electricity throughout the day. Um, our electricity bill is zero, and I think this is the only building in this whole area that is lit up at night.
4: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and it's Thursday, which means it's Global Activism where we feature people who make the world a better place. And I'm here with Aram Shah. She's the president of the Sonia Shah organization, an organization that was started by her daughter, Sonia. When we've discussed Sonia in the past, you talked about how the relationship changed at a certain point, that she began to lead you and began to push you in ways to where you almost felt like she was more your parent than the other way around.
3: Yeah. I'm Sonia's mother, but it's hard for me to describe her. Um, Every day, even now, I'm learning about her, Hmm. what she meant and what she wanted to do. And yes, the relationship changed somewhere. We were very close. I had her when I was quite young. Hmm. And she was my partner, a friend, a confidant, a critique. Uh, She would always say, you're my role model. But she had her own mind. And when she started this mission, something changed about her in terms of maturity. She was always a very mature person. And there was a sense of um, spirituality about her that grabbed anyone who met her. Anyone who, who ever met her would come to me or tell me later on, that Sonia will make a difference. We did not know how. She was a student of history and religion, interestingly. And she had a key interest in politics. And I was very scared of that. I would tell her, stay away from politics. Mm -hmm. And she would say, if you really want to make a difference, history, religion, and and politics are intertwined.
4: And she has a very, um, as you describe her, a very welcoming spirit, and that's part of um, the legacy of her work, is that um, your work is um, across religions, interreligious, not exclusive in any way, no matter what your faith uh, background might be, or if you have no faith at all, you you feel, and Sonia felt, that the mission was open to all.
3: Yeah. When we would talk about religion, she would say, Mama, I'm trying to pursue to be a good human being first, because that's where every religion starts. But she knew about religions. She was a student of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, uh, and she would learn about it and talk about it. When she was alive, you know, we lived in five countries and we traveled the world. And when she died, I feel my journey completely took a detour. And I went to Mecca um, right after her death. From there, I went to Majagoria. From Majagoria I went to Jerusalem. Mm. And then also to Fatima in Portugal, to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And... I don't know, but she opened the doors to me that I did not know existed for me. Hmm. And I feel that her mission of educating and empowering girls is important, and that's where she started. But it's more than just education. It's almost, I feel, that it's bringing quietly, bringing together quietly people ideologies and faiths, and strangers who would hear me or read about her, they would say there's something here that we want to come, and they come from completely different backgrounds um, and different religions and different faiths. So I don't know what this journey is about and where it's going to take us, but I feel Sonia ignited something, at least in me, that I have started to look up to her and started to see meanings in her words when she was alive and the things she did um, which didn't make as much sense as it makes now
4: What is it about this young lady that um, creates such inspiration from so many people who've never met
0: her?
3: I think a lot about that, not as a mother, but as someone who follows her mission, she truly wanted to make a difference. And she had a combination that very few people have, uh, which is high confidence and low ego. She was very confident about what she wants to achieve. And she was so mature That when we would go someplace, people would think she's my older sister because the way she would behave.
4: Mm.
3: When I would throw her a birthday party, she didn't like it.
4: Hmm. Why is that?
3: She would say, just, I have my friends who can come to me all the time. Why we have to throw a party to do that? Hmm. As a teenager, she never asked for clothes or fashion or anything. I remember I took her for shopping for college to William and Mary, she was very excited to go to college. And I went shopping, and she picked two jeans and two T-shirts. And I said, is that enough? She goes, yeah, that'll last me.
4: At a certain point, you decided that it was important to make Chicago a big part of your mission. Can you tell us about that evolution?
3: Sonia started this mission in Pakistan, but her view was very global. And it was all about all the girls, not just the girls from Congra. And when we started the school in the village and it started running and operating, my next step was what would Sonia would have done. Because the second thing she talked a lot was girls not being able to go to college here. And she was born here, but, you know, her mother was immigrant. So she was very conscious of some of the people who would never get a chance to go to school. And that's where our scholarship program came into being and we are making sure that only those girls get it where they cannot get it from anywhere else and they are motivated to change their lives and the lives of others around them.
4: And with us is one of the students who's being aided by the dream of Sonia Shah is Angela Ozier. Tell me about yourself, Angela. Where are you from?
6: Actually, I am from Albania. Raised most of my life in Greece.
4: In Greece?
6: Yes, my parents have, from a very young age, have to leave school and work in the
4: farms. So your family came from a very difficult circumstances. They lived in very difficult circumstances. Can you talk about that?
6: Yeah. Since when I was two years old, they moved in Greece. From, they didn't have any profession, so they keep doing the f- farming. So they are uh, living in stable where I lived with them. But when I was ready for the first grade, they decided to send me and my brother in orphanage.
4: So so your family lived in the animal stable where they worked.
6: Yes, and, me and, and my brother, until we have to go in the for elementary school for the th- first grade. And,
4: yeah. th- and so out of love, they sent you to an orphanage because it was better for you there than where you were. Yes. And so how did you come to the United States? How did you get here?
6: Like uh, an international student.
4: And so you're in school right now?
6: Yeah. On behalf of Sonia's uh, organization, I am at East West U- University studying biology to become a nurse.
4: A nurse. Wonderful. And um, what have you liked about America so far?
6: Mm, you can be whatever you want here. But you have to someone to believe in you and encourage you.
4: Where's your family now?
6: They are in Greece.
4: In Greece? Yeah. And then uh, how old is your brother?
6: My brother is 20.
4: 20 years old. Did you get along growing up? Did you argue a lot or, or were you did, close?
6: We didn't have that chance to fight with each other because we live in orphanage and there are some rules You have to follow. (laughs) So you cannot find.
4: (laughs) That's good. That's good. And so when you become a nurse, what else do you want to do?
6: Of course, I want to give back and make someone else dream reality uh, like Sonia did to me. I I, I know it's not going to be that much, but.
4: Oh, it'll be a lot easier than what you've already been through. This will be a piece of cake. Easy for you. I have no doubt.
6: Thank you. I hope.
4: Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Angela Uzier is a student at East West University here in Chicago, and she's here uh, in large part due to a Sonya Shaw Organization scholarship. So, Aram, uh, Aram, give me your thoughts on Angela. She's so impressive.
3: She is very impressive. She has lived a very difficult life, which cannot be summarized in few minutes because I've spent hours listening to her story. If there was anyone deserving of Sonia Shah's scholarship, it's her. And I think she will go on to do bigger, better, greater things. And she will give back to this country because this country helped her.
4: So we're in a time now where there's a lot of pressure on people who want to come here, who want to migrate here. Um, We've done numerous interviews with people who, frankly, don't feel very welcome in America anymore. What are your thoughts about that when you look at young women like Angela?
3: Well, currently, yes, there's a lot of fear and confusion and is directed at people who don't look, sound like us. But I'm an immigrant, and this country gave me everything. I am where I am, and I'm giving back to this country because America is the best country in the world. This is a hard time. And really go back to what is the core of our values are. And if we really, really are loyal to this country, we will not be shutting down doors on people like Angela.
4: Iram Shah is the president of the Sonia Shah organization based here in Chicago. And their annual gala is September 8th, Saturday, at the Logan Square Auditorium at 6 p.m. I will be there, and um, I hope people come out and learn so much more about this incredible young lady in whose memory you're doing this great work. Thank
3: you, Steve. Thank you very much for having us.
4: And Angela Uzier is a student uh, from Greece by way of Albania, who's here in the United States, studying at East-West University on a Sonia Shaw Organization Scholarship. Angela, it's a privilege to meet you. Thank you so much, Mito. And you've been listening to Global Activism. Global Activism is our Thursday series where we feature people who want to make the world a better place. And if you know of someone who's doing great work in the world and you want them featured on our series, please send us an email at worldview at wbez.org.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to learn about Living Architecture, an exhibition that showcases the work of over 50 Chicago contemporary immigrant artists. So that's in Edgewater, and we'll find out about that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.